It's the Victorian Variety Show. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be other men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. This is the Victorian Variety Show. My name is Marissa. And that excerpt you just heard is from the beginning of the War of the Worlds by Herbert George Wells, who, among many of us, is perhaps better known as H.G. Wells. Back in 1938, American actor Orson Wells, no relation, although I do appreciate that bit of synchronicity, caused something of a panic by adapting part of the War of the Worlds into a present-day story about Martians landing in New Jersey, which he read in the form of a newscast during a live radio drama. If you listen to the broadcast online, you will hear it stated at the beginning that it's an adaptation of the H.G. Wells novel, rather than an actual news broadcast but it seems that a percentage of listeners tuned in after the program started, perhaps during a commercial break, during a show on another station, and therefore missed that disclaimer. Therefore, these listeners found the program not only convincing enough to believe, but terrifying. Much has been written about what this controversial broadcast did for the career of Orson Welles, who was all of 23 at the time of the broadcast, and what its reception said about the American public at the time. And although both of these topics interest me greatly, I feel they're better suited to a different podcast format. What I want to stress for now is that Orson Welles' production didn't appear in a vacuum. Rather, it had its origins in a novel that was published in 1898, And, much like Orson Welles, H.G. Welles, who was born in 1866 in England, was also very much ahead of his time, as were other writers of science fiction during the Victorian era, which is a time many of us don't often associate with science fiction. And when you look at what was going on in 19th century England and in America, 
you have to wonder why this is the case. In an article called The 19th Century Roots of Science Fiction, Jared Karp notes that throughout most of human history, technological innovation, for the most part, occurred at a snail's pace. This isn't to say that revolutionary technological changes didn't happen, only that when they did, they usually appeared years apart from each other, rather than in rapid succession. This changed drastically during the Industrial Revolution in the 18th and 19th centuries. In a relatively short span of time, a multitude of inventions that were largely unthinkable to previous generations became integral to the day-to-day -day life of millions of individuals in the Victorian era. Photography, the telegraph, refrigerators, steel plows, trains, the sewing machine. This is an extremely short list of innovations with which Victorians were coming into contact and, if they could afford them, utilizing. However, the Industrial Revolution didn't only give people of the time new appliances and methods of transportation. It also led to the building of factories in larger cities, which made it necessary for millions of people whose families had lived in rural areas for centuries to move to unfamiliar urban areas and created new class distinctions between business owners and factory workers and even raised fears that work that had traditionally been performed by humans could now be done faster by machines. As a result, in Monsters and Machines, Science Fiction in the Victorian Era, Nathan Keckley notes that although the Victorians possessed a, quote, delight with modern science and a thirst for knowledge, end quote, due to the abundant scientific discoveries of the time and the renewed interest in anatomy, astronomy, engineering, and other sciences that went hand in hand with it, a lot of people were, understandably, questioning what effect all of these innovations would have on the quality of their lives and on the future of their society. And who better to explore these questions than the writers of the time? A number of writers chose to explore these issues in the form of essays and philosophical treatises. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who wrote the Communist Manifesto, immediately come to mind, as do John Stuart Mill and Jeremy Bentham, among others. However, I believe fiction writers were able to capture the awe of scientific progress and the concerns it brought about at the same time in a way that essayists, who often feel the need to stick to a drier form of writing that is deemed more acceptable for scholarly journals and publications, could not. In general, fiction writers have more room to speculate on the big questions, as opposed to coming down firmly on one side or another. And it's not unusual for them to explore these questions through certain types of characters and situations. As we'll soon see, Victorian science fiction writers were able to do this so effectively that contemporary writers are grappling with some of the same questions 
and using some of the same tropes that can be found in 19th century science fiction novels. Although Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein, which was first published in 1818, preceded the Victorian era, Keckley points out that it can be considered a precursor to Victorian science fiction in that it, quote, dealt with a very scientific and, as is typical of science fiction, very speculative idea, the creation of new life from non-life, end quote, as well as the extent to which humans have the right to control it a topic that's been explored more recently in Doctor Who, Star Trek, and Jurassic Park, among others. In addition, it could be argued that Victor Frankenstein paved the way for memorable mad scientists, a sci-fi trope most of us are familiar with, created by Victorian sci-fi writers. For example, the aforementioned H.G. Wells gave us several memorable mad scientists, including Dr. Moreau in his 1896 novel, The Island of Dr. Moreau, and Griffin, the chemist from his 1897 novel, The Invisible Man. When we look at mad scientists, I think we can see where 19th century writers were trying to voice their concerns to, or even warn, their readers. Although these characters are often entertaining, they also exemplify the dangers of obsession and what can happen when humans think they can outsmart Mother Nature. However, Victorian-era sci-fi novels didn't only raise questions and introduce characters that we see in contemporary sci-fi novels. In a piece from Britannica.com, Arthur B. Evans notes that French writer Jules Verne quote, laid much of the foundation of modern science fiction, end quote, in numerous novels and plays, including Journey to the Center of the Earth in 1864, 2,000 Leagues Under the Sea in 1870, and Around the World in 80 Days in 1872. Karp identifies, quote, prominent, optimistic and educational discussion of the natural sciences mixed seamlessly with the adventure tale, end quote, as the quote-unquote defining feature of Burns' work, but suggests that this optimistic tone, which was not often seen in the works of Burns' contemporaries, may have been due to the influence of Pierre-Jules Hetzel, who published a number of Burns' most popular works, the cynic in me wonders if this may have been due to a perception that more optimistic works were seen as more sellable, you might say. Evans, who separates Verne's prolific writing career into three phases, describes the second phase, which lasted from 1886, the year Hetzel died, to Verne's death in 1905, his quote-unquote pessimist period, in which Verne, quote, turned away from pro-science tales of exploration and discovery in favor of exploring the dangers of technology wrought by hubris-filled scientists, end quote. So again, I think we can see why the mad scientist trope is so deeply embedded in sci-fi. 
but it seems to me like Vern was the writer who, for whatever reason, best showed us the pros and cons of this age of innovation. One other thing that I think is notable about the interest in scientific advancement during the Victorian era and how its influence continues to be seen in contemporary sci-fi is that even experiments that failed at the time inspired writers of the period. An article on RacingNellyBly.com called Steam-Powered Victorian Era Robots failed miserably, but inspired science fiction stories. That's the title. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the name of the author, and I looked. This article explains that robophobia, the fear of robots, can be traced back to 1868 with Steam Man, who was created by two men from Newark, New Jersey, my birthplace incidentally, named Zadok P. Dederick and Isaac Grass. Although Steam Man, whose real name was Daniel Lambert, was quote-unquote out of steam and thus unable to perform on the day of his debut to the public, he inspired Edward S. Ellis, whom the Racing Nellie Bly article credits with writing, quote, the first science fiction dime novel in America, end quote, The Steam Man of the Prairies, which was followed by a number of sequels. I'm going to end this brief introduction to Victorian era sci-fi here, only because I feel there's a lot more to talk about, and I'd like to focus on several key areas in more depth in future episodes. However, I feel this is a good topic to discuss on this podcast because, as I mentioned toward the beginning of this episode, a lot of us don't think of sci-fi when we think of Victorian literature, at least not right away. In my lit classes in high school and college, I remember reading things like Wuthering Heights, Dickens, Thomas Hardy, Alfred Lord Tennyson, and many others, but not H.G. Wells or Jules Verne. On my other podcast, which is on an unofficial hiatus at present, I did an episode a while back on how so-called escapist literature is often dismissed by the academic community. And since sci-fi is sometimes considered escapist literature, I suspect that may be at least partly why you don't see, say, Wells discussed alongside the Bronte sisters. But... I believe escapist literature actually has many benefits to readers that its critics overlook. And I think it's especially a shame to dismiss Victorian sci-fi when you consider the messages Victorian sci-fi writers were trying to tell us. However, one positive thing is that the influence of Jules Verne, H.G. Wells, and Edward S. Ellis, among others, can still be clearly seen in the steampunk movement. Steampunk, of course, is a type of modern-day sci-fi that incorporates Victorian style or includes types of technology that were originally seen in the works of 19th century writers. I think it's important to stress that steampunk itself is not Victorian. Wikipedia explains that the term steampunk was coined in the 1980s by sci-fi writer K.W. Jeter. But I see steampunk as a type of homage to Victorian-era sci-fi that has a pretty devoted following. 
And I think that further underscores the need to take Victorian sci-fi a lot more seriously. And on that note, please let me know what you think. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or send me a voice message at anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at at Victorian Variety One. And if you'd like to support the show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13. And finally, I would really appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, as it'll help a lot more people find out about this show. I would like to take a moment to thank the Twisted Libra from the bottom of my heart for giving the Victorian Variety Show a shout out in the latest episode of her podcast. That kind of support is amazing. I'm a fan of the Twisted Libra podcast as well. And I hope you'll check it out after you listen to this episode. I'll include a link to her podcast in the notes for this episode. And I also really want to thank everyone for listening and for all of your support. I had a lot of fun researching this episode, and I truly hope you've enjoyed it. At first glance, it might seem like a big departure from the topics I've covered in my last few episodes, such as Victorian-era spiritualism and death and mourning practices, but I actually see a common thread. People during this period were actively questioning traditions and beliefs from previous eras, and wondering what exists outside of this world that we live in and often take for granted. As I've hopefully explained in this brief discussion, Victorian-era inventors and sci-fi writers were asking similar types of questions. So I'm definitely seeing connections between topics I've covered so far on this podcast, which I think is great. That said, I don't know what my next episode will be on, but I will be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. Until then... I think I'm going to leave you with another quote from The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. And I'll admit it's because I'm trying to channel my inner Orson Welles. I'm a huge fan. You can read the whole thing for free via Project Gutenberg. But I'll include a link to that and all of the other sources I consulted in preparing for this episode in the show notes. And I do hope you'll check them out. We have learned now that we cannot regard this planet as being fenced in and a secure abiding place for man. We can never anticipate the unseen good or evil that may come upon us suddenly out of space. It may be that in the larger design of the universe, this invasion from Mars is not without its ultimate benefit for men. It has robbed us of that serene confidence in the future which is the most fruitful source of decadence. The gifts to human science it has brought are enormous, and it has done much to promote the conception of the common wheel of mankind. It may be that across the immensity of space, the Martians have watched the fate of these pioneers of theirs and learned their lesson, 
and that on the planet Venus they have found a secure settlement. Be that as it may, for many years yet, there will certainly be no relaxation of the eager scrutiny of the Martian disk. And those fiery darts of the sky, the shooting stars, will bring with them as they fall an unavoidable apprehension to all the sons of men.